Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Punash. I'm here today with Mejdulin Shomali to talk about her book, Between Bennett, Queer Arab Critique and Transnational Arab Archives, published by the Duke University Press in 2023. Thank you very much, Mejdulin, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Fulia. I'm really excited to talk to you. Me too. So I'd like to start with learning about your background a little bit. So could you tell us about your background, how you ended up conducting this research on this topic and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I'll start maybe with my academic background. Um, I got a BA in English and literature, um, and that sort of generated my interest in creative works as representative of communities. And then I have a PhD in American studies and an MA in women's studies. So I sort of feel like all of these three academic disciplines combined to sort of situate me as a scholar. So the cultural studies from the BA and the gender and sexuality from my MA and the sort of investment in transnational ethnic formation from the the PhD. And um, I came to the research, as many people do, uh, as me search, you know, uh, I myself am queer. And I was looking for queer representation, particularly queer Arab representation and queer Arab women. And I was trying to understand why that community was so difficult to locate. And I was trying to understand what that community even looked like or felt like or what it meant to be queer and Arab at the same time, because that wasn't something that I really had access to um, growing up. And so the research was very much developed out of a desire, a personal desire to look for communities that I felt represented me and that I could belong to. Um, And so I started the project sort of maybe naively looking for like lesbian and gay Arabs. 
And I had to quickly realize that that was a faulty setup because those categories are very specific and very locally specific and weren't necessarily the frameworks by which Arabs understood their identities or their sexualities. And so I had to sort of expand my project and think through queerness as a more flexible category that wasn't identity based, but was more about resistance to normativity, um, either in gender and sexuality or in other forms of normativity, like normalizing the state, normalizing violence. And so when I opened up my understanding of what queerness was, it also opened up the access to queer communities that I had, because now it was easier to see the ways that I was in communication and in conversation with other people who were ambivalent, maybe about categories like lesbian, but who understood that they wanted to undermine patriarchy, or that they were suffering via normative heterosexuality. And so it was really an expansive turn and it, it enabled me to find um, the subjects of this book. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And, and it's very nice to hear uh, your personal story as well about this. And I, I like me search. I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So this is actually my first time doing this, but I'd like to ask you about your book dedication section. It reads, and I quote, for Bennett Arab and for the Arab women who have allowed me into possibility. I really like this quote. I have so many parts in the book that I highlighted, but I think this might be my uh, favorite. So can you tell us about what you mean with the Arab women who have allowed you into possibility? What does that mean for you? That is such a sweet question. Thank you. I never would have imagined anybody asking me about the dedication. So I'm very grateful to you. So I think that this book is a love letter to queer Arabs, yes. But even more than that, it is a love letter to Arab women. Because without the Arab women who raised me and educated me and mentored me and taught me how to be an ethical scholar and how to be an ethical person, this book would not exist as it does. And I would not exist as I do. And so, oh, I feel kind of emotional. I I really felt that the love of Arab women has saved my life on numerous levels. Like I have four, I have three sisters. Um, so I'm one of four and, um, I have many, many aunts and cousins and, um, cousins who are not actually related to me, but are also still cousins and growing up being, you know, shepherded by them through all of the violences and all of the scary things in the world. Um, made it really possible for me to continue existing. And then when I started my graduate studies, I was very fortunate to be taken uh, to be to, sorry, I was very fortunate to have two mentors who are also Arab women. And they really taught me what it meant to do feminist scholarship. And they also were role models for how to be an Arab woman and in the academy and how to um, fight for myself and how to value myself um, and how to network. And they also taught me how I 
what I should prioritize and who I should prioritize, you know, and the communities that mattered to me and the, the research and the topics that mattered to me. And so I really believe that um, without their care, without this incredible guidance um, in my both personal and professional life, without that, which I think of as a form of love, right? This is a form of love to spend some time with your graduate student, right? And to um, let them call you when you're freaking out about a project or to let them bounce ideas off of you or to put them in touch with other people that might be really important for their thought process. These are acts of love. They are acts of community. And so I feel I fully believe that I was loved into possibility, that I was able to exist as I am the scholar today through the sort of push and support of all of the Arab women around me. Hmm. That was very powerful and very beautifully said. Um, I am also, I also have three sisters, by the way, so I can definitely understand how growing up in such an environment, uh, what what that kind of a thing might mean uh, for a, for a woman from a you know a Middle East country. So in your introduction, um, you write, and I quote again. Queer sexuality, particularly women's queer sexualities, are understudied with an Arab and Arab-American scholarship and do not function in parallel to Western iterations of LGBTQ history and identity. They require an alternative methodology and archive that is a different kind of story and a different kind of telling. So could you tell us about how you're engaging with, how you're approaching to this alternative methodology and archive? So in other words, what does this different kind of story and different kind of telling mean for you? Yeah, thank you. Um, So this relates a little bit to what I said earlier about originally looking for lesbian or gay or bi identities and realizing very quickly that that narrative and that form, that historical identity formation was not going to map onto Arab or Arab American subjects for many different reasons. Um, One of them being that those folks were not thinking about their sexuality as necessarily tied to a fundamental part of their identity, right? So that they didn't need to come out or that they didn't need to um, put their sexuality as the front-loaded part of their identity. So in a lot of Western contexts, queer subjects are sort of expected to make their identities, to build their identity around their sexuality alone. And that's fine and wonderful. Um, But for a lot of Arab folks, the idea that you would build your identity around your sexuality alone by taking on an identity label like lesbian or gay or even heterosexual is not necessarily how the community thinks of themselves. It's not actually how they describe their relationships to one another and to their uh, lovers and to their kin. And so it really required a different kind of story. Like what does queer Arab becoming look like? Because it doesn't look like I realized I was gay at 11 and came out to my parents and moved to San Francisco, right? That's not, that's not everybody's story. It's a great story, but it's not everybody's story. And it wasn't when I 
started reading and and learning about queer women, it was not the story that they were telling either, that they had a really ambivalent relationship to their sexuality, that they maybe didn't come out or that they had multiple kinds of partners throughout their lives and they weren't married to sort of a singular identity or a singular set of practices. And so um, in that way, queer Arab sexualities are not, they're in conversation with, but they are not collapsible to the Western narratives of queer identity that many of us are most familiar with. And so that's the different kind of story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to talk about what queerness would look like outside of these sort of master narratives about what sexuality looks like. Um, Yeah, amazing. Um, In chapter one, where you analyze the rather unusual fairy tale, Thousand and One Nights, you write about um, foreclosing discourses. Here you're walking the reader through some factors that uh, limit queer Arab cultural production and that make the work of distinguishing a queer Arab feminine subject uh, very difficult. So in the introduction also you mention how heteropatriarchies, Arab nationalisms and orientalisms work together to kind of constrain, limit a queer Arab women's horizons. So could you tell us a bit more about these foreclosing discourses, these discourses that make the discerning, uh, distinguishing of a queer Arab feminine subject a difficult thing? Absolutely. So part of the reason that it is incredibly difficult to locate texts by and about queer Arab women is because they are navigating a set of discourses that demand many contradictory things from them all at the same time. So classic Orientalist thought sort of describes the Middle East as fundamentally queer. Um, That's a word even that Saeed uses in his book, Orientalism. Um, And that sort of projection of queerness onto the East Um, was responded to by these Arab nations with rejection. So rather than sort of take up this mantle of queerness, because it was used through Orientalism as a way to other that community, many of those nations rejected that that telling of their story. So they rejected queerness in the initial phase because because it was an Orientalist projection. And then it became a way those Arab nationalist or heteropatriarchal programs also started to reject queerness as it started to represent Western assimilation. And so um, a lot of times people would sort of imagine that gayness or I should say same-sex desire really doesn't exist in Arab worlds. And that if it does, that it's came from over there, right? Like you got that from them. That's not how we are. That's not what our communities look like. Um, Basically that's like white nonsense. Right. And so um, that makes it really painful, right? Because then it's saying that if you understand yourself as a queer subject, you are somehow not an Arab subject. And to understand yourself as an Arab subject 
you cannot access queerness. And so you're locked between these two oppositional forces and it makes it very difficult to coexist amidst them. And I think also another important challenge is that um, Arab folks, especially Arab women and queer folks, want to write about their communities and acknowledge the way that they are misogynist and homophobic without playing into Orientalism and anti-Arab racism. And so without giving, you know, credence to this notion that the West is somehow superior around issues of misogyny and homophobia, which of course is false. Um, But then it sort of becomes challenging for those queer folks to talk about those issues um, because then that's also seen as capitulating to Western critique, right? So both the identity and the analytic framework are sort of contested as somehow betraying your Arab culture or alternately incompatible with queerness. And so that's what I mean by limiting discourses, that there are all of these threads that folks who are coming to terms with their sexuality are considering when they try to articulate their desires, their identities, their practices. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for um, describing this. And um, you're telling us that um, queer Arab women and feminists teach us some ways to surpass these foreclosures in the book, these difficulties through rejecting authenticity, respectability and inclusion. So could you tell us about what these refusals entail? What do they mean? What does it mean to reject authenticity, to reject respectability, to reject inclusion? And how do women uh, and feminists undertake such refusals? Absolutely. So I think that if you accept the narrative that Arab culture does not have capacity for queerness, then you have accepted a narrative about cultural authenticity that is going to be necessarily exclusionary and violent to many members of your community, not just explicitly queer folks, but anybody whose performance of gender or sexuality does not align with the heteronormative standard of the Arab culture. And I want, and I said Arab culture because I'm not thinking about American heteronormativity. I'm thinking about Arab heteronormativity and Arab queerness. And those are, as I said earlier, collapsible to American or Western articulations. And so if you want to, by sort of imagining that there is a singular authentic Arab culture and that that singular authentic Arab culture is informed by normative visions of gender and sexuality, that creates a really gatekept and exclusionary culture. And so you have to actually reject the idea that there is an essential, unchanging essence of Arabness um, in order to make space for the actual diversity of the community that exists. And so for me, rather than thinking of Arabness as rooted in you know, knowledge of the language. So for example, 
uh, oftentimes people in the diaspora are considered less Arab because they may not speak Arabic at all or as fluently as people in Arab nations. And I think that that is a really troubling and problematic understanding of Arab identity because people in the diaspora are there for many reasons, um, often as refugees or children of refugees, as people who immigrated for various reasons, as people who were expelled, as Palestinians were. And so to imagine that they too do not participate in Arab cultural traditions because of their the difficulty with which they would access Arabic is a a really limited way to understand Arabness. And so I want to say that Arabness is not about one particular set of behaviors or ideas, but that it's actually about being in community with other people and creating Arabness through community, that it's about the relationships that we have and the histories that we share and the communities that we build, not necessarily the identifying factors that each individual holds, right? And so rather than looking at an individual and saying, okay, to be Arab, you have to be this, this, and this, I'm saying Arabness is created between people and not located in one person alone. And so for me, that's a rejection of cultural authenticity. I think um, hopefully that was a clear explanation, but I think respectability is a lot easier because it ties so transparently to normativity. And so respectability at its core is this idea that in order to be deemed a respectable, acceptable subject, you have to perform certain gender and sexual roles. And if you don't, you are seen as subject to uh, any bad treatment you get. So if you flout conventions of gender. Let's say you wear more revealing clothing or you get tattoos or you change your hairstyle or you do whatever it is that flouts those normative conditions of gender. Somehow you aren't regarded as receiving the respect and privacy that other women have because they've conformed to respectability. And historically, for many communities of color and queer communities, they practice respectability in order to eliminate chances for harm, right? And so, for example, respectability is an important concept in Black histories and Black American histories where Black women in the U.S. were hypersexualized. And so respectability was a way to sort of retain some autonomy and privacy around their bodies, right? And that's an important strategy and one that I wouldn't take away from any community necessarily. But not everyone can achieve respectability. There are some people who are always going to fall outside of the normative conventions that we have for gender and sexuality. Um, for example, trans folks often will fall outside of that. Um, gender queer and non-binary people, sex workers, um, people who are not interested in monogamy, right? All of these people are going to fall outside of what can be achieved through respectability because those are not considered respectable positions. And so in order to really embrace gender and sexual fluidity, we can't have respectability be the means by which we navigate or negotiate our freedom. So if our freedom is contingent on respectability, then we are not free. So we have to be able to be free no matter how you perform gender and sexuality, whether it is, you know, through sex work or whether you choose that sort of more monogamous lifestyle um, that you would 
be able to be a free and safe subject, no matter how you perform those roles. And so that's why respecting, rejecting respectability is so important to me. And then lastly, in terms of inclusion, I think that Inclusion sort of implies that there is a center group and everybody's trying to gain access to it. And I actually think that we should not have to gain access. I think we should just remove the barrier and that we should be in community with one another outside of someone letting me in and then necessarily pushing somebody else out. And so that's, and it relates to these other two points in the sense that you shouldn't have to achieve cultural authenticity. You shouldn't have to achieve respectability in order to be considered properly queer or properly Arab. Um, You should just be allowed to be in those communities. And so that's why inclusion is not necessarily the goal because the goal is to create a community that does not require gatekeeping. (laughs) Yeah, and these all connect very well with the um, focus on relations as well. Also, um, some other things that are central in your work are feelings, the effects. So I want to ask also about this. So why and how are feelings, the effects, important here? What do they work against? Mm-hmm. So a few things. Uh, One is that feeling is a mode of accessing knowledge and producing knowledge that has been historically written off as too feminine or too sentimental um, or not because it's not scientific or quantifiable. It is seen as an unreliable source of information. But For queer folks or for folks who are navigating homophobia or misogyny or heteronormativity, um, feeling is really important because you want to move towards things and people that make you feel safe or feel seen. And you want to move away from things and people that make you feel unsafe or unseen or are actively perpetuating violence against you. And so that knowledge that we have about who is safe for us and who can hold us in all of our complexity is not something that you could scientifically quantify, right? That's a feeling that's produced between people. And so rather than sort of looking for, you know, properly queer or properly, you know, um, LGBT texts, I thought to myself, what is my, where do I feel myself? Where do I feel myself as a subject entering these texts? How, why do I feel such a connection to this character, to this dancer, to this, uh, movie? Um, what am I feeling from that? And how does it represent me? And so I used feeling my feelings as a writer and as a scholar and as, you know, a research realer, really, I used my feelings to help me find texts that I felt represented me in my community. Um, and that I couldn't have arrived at that by just sort of like, quantifying how many times a novel said the word gay, right? Like, no, that's not what we're doing. We're doing something different. And I also think that feeling is really important because it's ephemeral and it's temporary. 
and it moves and it is constructed between people. Like you do not feel, you can feel and experience something in your body, but for feeling to be read, it has to be received by somebody else. And so there really is a way that feeling allows us to have a more relational conversation. Um, And it also refuses the idea that knowing through the body is not true knowing. Like we have learned so many things because we have generational knowledge or oral histories or because we got a bad feeling and we believed our instinct, right? So I want to validate that this mode of knowledge and understanding uh, that is emotional is just as important to the research project as any scientific or qualitative or quantitative method, that it is a method unto itself that is valid. Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, So in your chapters, you first discussed the golden era film about the Egyptian cinema uh, in chapter two, and you're telling us about the nostalgia, the past, um, kind of opening a space for a queer reading, kind of requiring a queer reading to be clear. And in chapter three, you discuss three Arabic novels where queerness is more openly available, even without a queer reading. In chapter four, you discuss the nonfiction, so autobiographical uh, narratives about sexuality from queer people in Palestine and Lebanon. And lastly, you write about um, graphic novels, prints, and film in chapter five to kind of locate how women find pleasure, joy, intimacy, and really opening um, better futures for themselves. So moving from one chapter to another in between Bennett means moving from uh, more hidden uh, to more open ways of making and seeing uh, queer Arab transnational archives. But it also means moving from the nostalgia, the past, to the present and then to the future. So can you tell us about this choice to write between Bannett in this way, both analytically and temporality-wise? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that lovely observation about the book. I think for me, I wanted to start with... Um, a mainstream popular Arab text because I wanted to refute the idea that queerness was not present in Arab cultures or that it was somehow an export or an import, I guess, from Western culture. And so I wanted to look at something that was in, that is incredibly beloved and is incredibly expressive of Arab cultures. Most folks love the 1950s era of film in Egypt. You know, there are still, as I mentioned in the book, satellite networks, channels devoted to only that, and that people have a lot of pride in that period of Arab cultural production because Egypt was at the forefront of the silver screen and they were producing so much work. People also really love that era because of its canonical stars. So some of the biggest names in Arab music and film come out of that time period. And so I wanted to look at something that was so centrally Arab and so belovedly Arab and say, that is a little queer, actually. I'm going to show you how this thing that you think is super symbolic and super important to your understanding of your culture 
actually has space for queer people. And so I wanted to start there to sort of prove the point of, you know, queerness is and has always been a part of our communities and our culture. And that 1950s Egypt, just like 2023 Palestine is actively thinking about what does it mean to have, what does it mean to look at gender and sexuality differently? How do we talk about that in our communities? What is normative? What is non-normative? What we, what is resistant? What is sort of, what is the story told on the screen and what is the story told in a wink and a nudge? And so I wanted to sort of, um, take this really beloved thing and show that it it had all of the capacity for queerness that we imagine was impossible for both the time period, but also for the community itself. Um, and then I thought if I'm going to write a book about queer Arab sexuality, it would be a failure of me to not look at the texts that name themselves as explicitly queer. So even though I'm invested in a more expansive understanding of queer sexuality that doesn't have to be named as lesbian or gay or what have you, I still felt that if I wanted to represent my community as broadly as possible, then I should look at what people were saying about themselves. And so that's why I wanted to look at the novels that claim to be Arab lesbian novels, as well as the autobiographical work from queer LGBT organizations in the Arab nations. And so it was really important that I center those voices of queer people doing queer things um, and the way that they talked about themselves. Um, And then I would say the last chapter for me actually moves back towards the goals of the chapter on Egyptian cinema in the sense that the texts of that chapter are not properly queer, right? They are not about finding a lesbian filmmaker or finding a um, protagonist who is exploring her sexuality as such. They are really about looking at all of these works that are rejecting normativity and gender and heteronormativity specifically, and that through that rejection of those normativities, through that rejection of respectability, they are making a more capacious and exciting and joyful queer space, even if they do not understand themselves as queer. Um, Which is to say, I'm not trying to say any of those writers or illustrators are queer, but I am saying that their work is world-making, that it is opening up possibilities for different kinds of genders and sexualities. And so it's almost, to your point, a future projection of what we saw happening in the golden era period, where people are having those conversations in Arab culture right now, and they look and they are happening in all different kinds of mediums and all different kinds of formats, and that rejecting normativity itself is going to be a better world for not just queer people, but even folks who are not necessarily understanding their identities through those metrics. Um, And so that's the sort of project of the texts itself. I will just say about the timeline. um, I didn't want to imagine that queerness 
was only historical or only presentist. For me, queerness is a world making. It is futurity. It is about enabling bigger, better, brighter, more inclusive things. And so I wanted to sort of think about phases of our sexuality and phases of our lives. And so for me, talking about strategies in the last chapter is a gesture towards making futures out of the present and the past that I've just constructed in the book. Yeah, thank you. And um, this will be my last question about the book. So can you tell us a bit about your position here as someone who is working on this transnational archive? So you are an archivist and you're calling yourself a reluctant (laughs) archivist too, but you're also becoming a part of this archive with uh, your own self, with your book Between Bennett, which is becoming a part of this. Um, And you're committed to both both of um, the making and unmaking of this. So what kind of a position is this? Are there any anxieties about it or are there there more like openings about this position? Yes, Um, (laughs) both of those things. So yeah, I think that um, for me, part of the challenge of using the idea of an archive is that it, creates certain parameters and certain um, qualifiers for what is included or excluded. It's similar to how we talk about canons. Like when you create a canon, you automatically create a sort of standard that is about some kinds of work and some kinds and, and, and not including other kinds of work. And so my anxiety about sort of suggesting an archive is twofold. One, I don't want to be the gatekeeper of what is queer and what is not. I have no business doing that. I'm saying here are some things I think are queer and I think tell a story of queerness that could be included in our archives, but it is not my position to say what shouldn't be in there. (laughs) You know? So, and I don't, I don't want that responsibility um, because I think to my point, I'm not interested in authenticity or respectability or an essential form of identity. Um, so I wanted to be able to collect a group of texts that suggested that we had a historical and contemporary presence without creating an exclusionary group of texts that meant that this is the only archive um, and that the archive had to look a certain way. The other thing about it is that, for example, the chapter on Egyptian cinema, um, when I first wrote that chapter, it is previously published as an article, people told me that my readings of the not of the films were wrong, that they were so obviously about heterosexuality and performing heterosexuality. And that, and there's an anxiety around saying something is queer when those people may not have envisioned themselves as queer subjects. And that that could be a certain kind of violence that it could say, you know, I'm calling you a name that you would never have used for yourself. And that's a certain violent position. And so I had to be very clear in that chapter that I was a spectator, I was a queer spectator, and that I was finding queerness through this position of queer spectatorship, and that I found possibility in those texts without those texts having to themselves be queer, right? That there was possibility in them that existed 
page for page alongside the heterosexual or heteronormative narrative, right? Um, So I'm not naming them as queer. I'm just saying there's some queer things going on here as well. And so that's another part of it is that I don't want to engage in this project of naming that would feel foreign or unwanted to the people who received the name or who were called by that. And so that's why I'm also sort of reluctant to imagine an archive as sort of a sealed object because how people are included or excluded is really, is really has, there's a lot of stakes to it. There's a lot of pressure put on that point. Um, Yeah, it's one of, and I, you know, I have to tell you that even now it's something that I still think about. Like I wrote the book and there it is, right? Um, But I also, I don't know that I think that it is a sealed object itself, right? That it is like any archive, a production of the moment it was written and the person who produced it and that it can change and be fluid the same way that I envision all of these texts changing and being fluid, you know? Um, Yeah. And so let me, was there anything else I want to say about archives? I'm not sure. I just think that um, the reluctance is really a reluctance to gatekeep and a reluctance to impose violence. But the desire for it is a desire to find ancestry and to project futures. And so it's a very tricky task. And I certainly don't believe I achieved it flawlessly. I'm sure someone will tell me I have not. And that's totally okay. Because I love that queerness is always in process. And I'm willing to be in process with it. Yeah, I definitely think that it it achieved that uh, goal. (laughs) So thank you so much for taking us through your wonderful book and your thinking. We have taken up a lot of your time, so I will now move to my last question. So what are you working on now or what would be your next project? Sure. So I'm working on a couple projects right now. The first one is very much aligned with the project of Between Benat, and it is about thinking about queerness in Arab cultures in performance rather than in um, texts rather than stable texts. So um, I'm like vaguely scared of talking to people in real time, but so much queerness is happening across the Arab world and within its diaspora that is happening in bars and clubs and drag stages and underground communities that we are seeing um you know, a really robust, for example, drag queen scene in Lebanon. And there is a really robust queer Arab dance party that happens in New York City and in D.C. and in Chicago and in San Francisco. And I'm sure if I knew more about the U.K., probably in Berlin and in London and all of these other places. Right. And so. Um, that there is a new, not a new moment, but there is queerness being produced in these bars and clubs and and spaces. And it's happening in that same ephemeral way that feeling happens because performances are but a moment and then they are often not recorded or uh, 
they are a moment. And even if they are recorded, you cannot capture the feeling of that moment that every person in the audience felt. And so that's one part of the project is to sort of think about queerness as it is dancing and living and moving right now in various locations, um, both in the Arab world and in its diasporas. The second project is um, for, is a project about beauty and it's about beauty in Palestine specifically. And so I'm Palestinian. Um, I lived in Palestine as a kid and um, I still have my family is there and I sort of have moved back and forth between Palestine my whole life and the liberation of Palestine as it is for all Palestinians is right at the top of my list. And so, um, but I am also someone who looks at art and thinks about the power of art and the importance of it in our revolution and in our liberation and in our struggles. And so that's really what this, this second project is about. It is about how um, beauty as an aesthetic and an affect and how art is part of a Palestinian revolutionary moment. And it's an attention to the really vibrant and beautiful ways that Palestinians persist and that they exist and resist. Um, rather than sort of imagine Palestine as a constant site of only suffering, um, I want to talk about the ways that it is beautiful and the ways that it is celebrating and living and thriving. Well, not thriving necessarily, because how do you thrive under apartheid? But it is certainly resisting and surviving in really uh, stunning and compelling ways. And so I want to talk about that narrative. Um, and so that's the other project that I'm working on is sort of thinking about radical aesthetics and radical affect and the way that beauty and feeling contribute to our revolution and to our liberation. Hmm. Beautifully put again. Um, those all sound very wonderful and we'll certainly be looking forward to seeing these projects. Thank you so much, Mejdaline, for your time, for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much, Fulia, for having me. It's really exciting to talk to someone about the book and uh, for your really insightful questions. I'm very grateful. Thank you. But really, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Fulia Pnar. This discussion of Between Banat, Queer Arab Critique and Transnational Arab Archives is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.